You're listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your great host, Louise Poynton. Hello, hello everyone and welcome to part two of our trip down memory lane with the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David and his legacy. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and did I mention last time, it's our birthday. Hey kid, I hear it's your birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Yes, two years ago we started the podcast series and it's been incredibly successful. Thank you all very much for downloading the episodes and getting in touch, telling me how much you enjoy it. We're going to start off by hearing about the impact of Cassidy Mania in the UK. And later on, you will hear extracts from conversations I have had over the past two years with Brian Roxy, Richie Furet, and a host of David's loyal fans, both male and female. David Hamilton is one of Britain's best-loved broadcasters, who's been at the cutting edge of entertainment for more than 60 years. I spoke to him about his boyhood dream of becoming a professional footballer and how his broadcasting career took off with the British Forces Network in Germany in 1959. David joined Radio 1, the leading pop station in the UK, where he first met David Cassidy when he was a guest on his show in 1972. The following year, he was invited to compare David's UK tour when he sold out a record-breaking six concerts in three days at Wembley's Empire Pool. Here is what Cassidy Mania at Wembley sounded like when David introduced him. In this short extract, David reflects on working with the 1970s superstar and the impact of fandom on international stars. And as you know, I I compared one of his UK tours and um, I told the story, which uh, I told you and I think you put in your book, um, about how he hated the girls screaming. So so that he couldn't hear the girls screaming because he was a good singer. He wanted them to hear him. He put cotton wool in his ears and then realised that he couldn't hear the band. So that yeah. didn't work. So it was a kind of no-win situation. You know, I got to know him quite well uh, on the tour and I got to realise that, um, you know, he wasn't always completely happy. I think, you know, while he was here in the UK, he would love to have seen a bit of the country. He would love to go horse riding during the day, instead of which he spent his whole time holed up in hotel rooms, you know, which is, you know, not great for anybody, is it? You can't exercise, you can't go anywhere or do anything that's that's what happens when you have you know supreme stardom is that the um the fervor of your fans sometimes makes like life difficult for you 
I did one of the first television interviews with the Beatles in 1963 and also interviewed Brian Epstein, their manager, and uh, Jerry Marsden, his new protégé. And then uh, later that year, I introduced the Beatles uh, at the Ermston show in Manchester. And um, it was early days for them, so it was not, you know, Hollywood Bowl or big venues or anything like that. I think the show was done in a huge tent, a bit like Jerry Cottle's circus tent, you know, huge, enormous marquee. And I remember the girls um, stampeding the stage, you know, and I, I introduced them and I thought, cracky, I better get off here. And I, all right for me, I jumped off and that was my bit done. But the, the, they were just, it was early days. It was before Beatlemania had been um, coined. And then the next year I introduced the Rolling Stones at the Palace Theatre Manchester. Going back to David, can you remember the first time you met him? Was it through uh, Dave Bridger? Uh, yeah, I think it might have been. David Bridger was with Bell Records, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, he was. He was the he was the promoter, and it would be somebody like David who would bring somebody David Bridger, that is, who would bring somebody like David Cassidy to our attention for the first time. He would say, "Got a great record for you. He must listen to this." This guy is absolutely so hot. He's done this, that, and the other. You know, he's been in the Partridge family. He's a big star in America. He's going to be a huge star here. So you put it on, you listen to it with the, uh, it was all vinyl, of course, in those days. Listen to it with the producer and say, oh, God, yeah, this is going to be huge. Must have this as our record of the week. Hamilton Hotshot, I called it on Radio One. Yeah, uh, then when I was asked to do the tour, I saw, you know, Cassidy Mania at, uh, at Close Up. And, you know, we went around the country. Didn't matter where you were in the country. Uh, it was all the same because he was the hottest teen idol at the time. The only rivals that he had really were the Osmonds. I mean, David Cassidy was gorgeous looking, wasn't he? I mean, he was every girl's dream. That's what I always say about him. Uh, he was so good looking. He had that wonderful sort of men had in those days, very long hair. And um, of course, he was, you know, wonderful specimen. He was wonderful shape. So even I as a man, even I as a heterosexual man, could understand that... Uh, Women, young women would find David Cassidy uh, really. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, it, it's always men. It's always men who are considered to be the more aggressive sex. We're getting into a really serious area here now, and yet men don't go along to concerts and scream and shout <laughs> and throw their knickers on the stage, do they? <laughs> Nina Miskoff was the first woman editor of Jackie magazine. She was at the cutting edge of pop culture in the 1970s, playing a key role with innovative ideas which took sales up to one million copies a week, thanks to putting David Cassidy's picture on the front cover. Here, she recalls meeting David at the height of his fame, sharing his reaction when, many years later, she played him a recording he made for a giveaway flexi-disc in Jackie magazine. And I think one of the things we were we took a great deal of care with with Jackie magazine was to recognize what a crush was and how important it was to a young girl to have an object of fantasy and desire. It was practicing for romance, practicing for life, I think, in a way. The Jackie readers were divided between Donny Osmond and David Cassidy. And, I, you know, I don't think war ever really broke out. But if you loved one, 
you didn't love the other, mostly. And they were both equally worthy of little girl's affection, I think. Because David gave you your biggest seller in one, one issue in 1972. I think yeah, that around the time the sales went from like 600,000 a week thousand, to a million. To, that and the, we, we, we instigated the, the, the three-part pin-up because Jackie was huge compared to some other magazines. So we'd, we'd have the centre page spread as a pin-up and then I had the idea of doing it over three parts, over three weeks, so that you'd have to buy it for three weeks, which was the marketing bit. And so you'd give away the middle bit and then, and then, the, and then, the, and then the legs and then you'd give away the head last because if you gave the head first, they might not get the other two parts. And, and then say so the, the sales shot up. The David Cassidy cover was the one that did it, I think. Sometimes the colours didn't quite match. <laughs> I know, this was the terrible thing. The, the, the printing process was not the most sophisticated and it was so sad because they'd they'd come back in the post they'd fold them up and say i can't make it fit you know and you know and, and there'd be an overlap of the of the fingers you know so there'd be you know so it looked like they like bunches of bananas and it was always oh, terrible there was nothing we could do about it. all the colors didn't match up you know there'd be flesh tone of you know sort of almost puce and the face and then deathly pale on the hands you know oh no tell tell me uh about your encounters with him because you did meet david a few times and i did found him incredibly shy the first time i saw him was at a press conference in scotland and i think he was being launched as the face of keep scotland tidy something like that it was and there was a crowd of journalists in a room probably about 40 maybe 50 a small room and he came in and he sat down and he looked up at everybody and the photographers and the journalists and he just blushed he just he just absolutely blushed you your heart went out to him and at that time it was Cassidy mania you know I remember being in a car with him being driven through the center of Glasgow I think it was and the police had actually turned the traffic light so that everything was green on his route so he didn't have to be stopped but but something went wrong and there was a red light and the car was just completely overwhelmed with kids you know crawling all over it and banging on and pulling off the the windscreen wipers and you know just and you know he, he was under siege really and it was I think that was must have been terrifying for him I interviewed him, you know, several times in those sort of days. But then I interviewed him later on and I interviewed him probably in the late 90s and met him a few times. And there was a kind of almost like this is your life that he did. And I was invited as a guest onto that. I found him. He's a very, very smart man and very, very talented. But I found him troubled. I always found him troubled. And in the late 90s, and I did a big interview with him, I think, for The Mirror. And he told me then about his father and the... Uh, pressures of having a father who was alcoholic and uh, in those days they called him manic depressive. All he really wanted actually in life, I came to the conclusion, was that he wanted his father's approval and he never got it. And the terrible thing was that in, you know, in his late teens when he was really uh, getting so famous around the world and he'd done the Partridge family and he was having all hit singles and he was getting more and more and more fame, which a normal parent would have been thrilled about. It only caused jealousy in his father and so the more famous he got the more he was trying to get his father's approval the more it backfired on him and uh, that seemed to me very sad and I think that colored his life and I think that sadly really was the undoing of him. I remember you saying that you'd played him at one interview a flexi disc because Jackie yeah. and you always used to give out flexi discs of the stars of the day yeah. Tell us what his reaction was. I was 
interviewing him in a little recording studio in called Wise Buddha in um, the centre of London. And it was for a Radio 2 miniseries. It was two parts. And it was, I was a teenage heartthrob. And one part was David Casty and Adam was Donny Osmond. And I was interviewing it and it was a tiny little studio. I mean, we were, we were like as close as you and I are. I know we're, we're looking at each other down a Zoom lens, as it were. Mm-hmm. But he was just there. I could, I could reach out and touch him. He was on a little thing and a microphone. He had a microphone. And he was wearing a baseball cap. And I said to him, David, I wanted you to listen to this because, you know, it's a Jackie Flexi disc. We've managed to get some sound out of it just to see what memories it brings back. Because it, it starts out by saying, you know, I'm David Cassidy and I'm sitting here in my studio with my trusty dog and I'm looking out at whatever. And the engineer played that so he could hear it. And I looked at him and his head went down. So I couldn't see and his cap was, um, the brim was in the way. And then he looked up and his eyes were absolutely filled with tears. And I, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to upset you. He said, no, he said, I'm, I'm listening to the voice of an innocent man. Hi, this is David Cassidy, and uh, it's really a beautiful day here in Los Angeles, where I live. So I decided to take a little time out from my regular recording schedule and uh, make this little tape for you all. I'm presently sitting here in my music room with my trusty friend and companion, Bullseye. I've been working on some really different material for this LP, and uh, I'm really, really excited about it. And uh, I'm actually really excited about letting you hear it, so when you do... Why don't you, uh, why don't you drop me a line and let me know what you think about it, okay? I really appreciate that. You know, I've been thinking a lot about my plans for winter, and, uh, one of the things I'm really looking forward to doing is, is skiing. I really love to ski, and I, I'm finally getting pretty fair at it. As a matter of fact, I even managed to get in some, uh, some skiing on my, my last trip to Europe in Spain. And who knows, maybe I'll even get a chance to ski on your slopes in, in Scotland, too. Which brings me to one of the one of the nicest thoughts about winter is uh, the thought of perhaps seeing you all again. I'm trying to arrange to come over on another tour, so let's all keep our fingers crossed and perhaps it'll happen. I know I can't think of a better way to spend my Christmas holidays. Because Christmas is a really warm, peaceful feeling that we all get. And uh, it's the kind of feeling that you can only get by being around people that, that you really care about, that you really love. Well, I've got to get back to work now, but before I do, I just wanted to, uh, to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a whole lot of love. The thing is, he knew how talented he was. He knew how brilliant he was, and yet he could, all, he could never feel happy with that. I think when he succumbed to the, the booze, inside himself, he knew exactly what he was doing and hated it. And I think, but I think he was powerless to stop himself. Michael Pomerico is best known for his work on ABC TV's daytime drama All My Children for over 30 years, 15 of those as a director. Michael has been a loyal David Cassidy fan since 1970. He reflects on his own career, David's acting career on television and the stage, relives David's 1972 Madison Square Garden concert and offers an analysis of David's songs and the respect he had from his peers. In this extract, he reflects on the legacy. I think he made a difference in people's lives. And what else can you do, even if you touch one person? And he touched millions uh, mm-hmm. in different formats. Be Broadway, whether it be uh, music uh, in the studio. You know what I remember is that The View 
the rehearsal when because it was a live show and David sang live, he ran through his songs several times. And in between songs, he was talking to the other musicians that were on the stage that they had hired for him. And he was talking about equipment. And it struck me that, man, he even knows technical stuff. He knows his stuff. He invested in the types of guitars and the music and he knew the process. He knew how to do everything. Yeah. He touched the whole, he did, he just didn't touch the United States. You know, he touched the world and that's what is, is, is to me, when you say legacy to me, it's like, gosh, everywhere you go, somebody's heard of him. His records were big all over the world. It doesn't happen. It didn't happen uh, to a lot of people. It was just something about the mix of his voice, his looks, the show, the writing, the 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 time period. Like you said, you know, we 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 were. You got to remember where we were in '68, '69 with the Vietnam War and the Manson's murders and and John Robert F. Kennedy being assassinated and all this turmoil in the world. And then this nice little show mm. comes along that just is a great escapism and it's charming. Like I said, when I watch the Partridge Family shows, I always look at the end of scenes and see as the camera's fading, what they're doing or saying or whatever, because to me, that's knowing with my experience, that's them. That's the real them. A couple of little things have happened where, I, where, where I've seen them. Uh, and I just say, that's David. He solidified for me how I viewed him as like this multi-talented entertainer. He could act. He knew what he was doing as an actor. <laughs> he really knew what he was doing as an actor. He knew what he was doing as a dramatic actor. He knew what he was doing as a comedic actor. He knew how to perform and to sing. Because of that acting uh, ability, I believe that's his, how he interpreted his songs. You, you, ju you just don't turn that off. You know, you, you can't turn it off. I mean, one, I, again, one of the things that stand out of my mind is him singing My First Night Alone Without You at Madison Square Garden. That vocal echoing in the garden, you taught me how to live, to be myself and how to give, that was like, whoa, this was, this was um, very, very powerful. And a very, the reading of the lyrics were very, um, you know, as a, as a 15 year old kid at the time, I wasn't moved as much just because of my age. Uh, but there was something there and that I, I recognized. And so uh, I just think he was, he was a very great lyrical interpreter. And hugely underappreciated. Totally underappreciated. You know, if he, uh, if he didn't have the baggage, the Keith Partridge baggage that unfortunately he had, which it's a double-edged sword in a way, because if you think about it, uh, the fact that he did have this image just showed you how good he was. Yeah. Could, could anybody have been Keith Partridge? Mm, I don't think so. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It was just the perfect, that's why they have, that's why they read for the part. And my special guest today is Richie Furey, a pioneer of California country rock. He started Buffalo Springfield with Neil Young and Stephen Stills, later forming Poco, two bands which had a major influence on David's love of music. He recalls how he met David Cassidy, who he considers creative, talented and hugely underrated. He invited David to sing backing harmonies on three tracks on his Dance a Little Light album, he talks about their friendship and his own composition for Someone I Love, which David reworked 
as Loving Bloom. I know David was, he, he was troubled. There was no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think he, he saw himself in one light and, and the, the things that he was trying to do and to accomplish, uh, you know, he was still under the control of this umbrella that saw him as someone else. And, and I think that was such a, a tragic, uh, um, you know, part of his life that he just couldn't get out from under. You know, I, w- I was just thinking, David and I had our moment, and it was a very, it was a very small, uh, you know, time when uh, my wife Nancy's good friend Jane, she was his housekeeper for a long time, or for quite a while, and she was one of Nancy's uh, dear friends, and that's how our connection with him happened. And so, yes, we did. We, we, we spent a lot of time, but then I was remembering when I went um, back to New York once on a, on a visit, and he was doing the Coat of Many Colors, and, you know, I got in touch with him, and actually at the end of the day when I saw him it was almost like he was another person he wanted to break away from being this idol you know this teen boppy idol where he wanted a mature respect coming to him and so there was his trouble but then later on obviously in life you know when um, you know I like everybody else would read the stories you know, where he would be struggling with his alcohol or with something, you know, that would uh, that would just be devastating to him and finally caught up to him. Because I never, I, I guess, you know, he never really got to the point that he wanted to go and where he just could be accepted for who I am. I'm just David. I'm David. I'm just David Cassidy, and and you know what? I've I've got this little bag of talent here, and I love to share it with you, and and all that. But he never got, he never got to see it. I think in the way to where, where he felt, this is really me. This is really me. I was this manufactured little thing over here, you know, and and people grabbed onto that, and and bless their heart, because I mean, so many people loved him for that, but you know, he was more than that. He was more than that. And that's what he that's where he was troubled in that he could never really break out of that mold. I am very, very pleased to welcome my guest, who tells everyone he was inspired to play the guitar by Keith. Oh, Richards, they exclaim. No, he tells them seriously, Keith Partridge. He has played with some of the legends of rock, Slash, Brian May, Gilby Clark. Robin Zander, it is an A to Z of the best guitarists on the planet, and he just happens to be one of them as long-time lead guitarist with one of the most exciting rock bands in history, the Alice Cooper Band. In his own words, the man who spent two years recording with Slash's Snake Pit, Ain't Life Grand, admits, in reality, I always wanted to be Keith Partridge. Here is Ryan Roxy. So your other guitar heroes were the likes of Brian May, Keith Richards, uh, Rick Nielsen. Yep. Um, Those are all great ones, as well as some some unsung heroes that I have in there. Johnny Thunders, very rock and roll, blues-based um, guy, um, but with a pop edge, a pop feel to it. Um, Andy McCoy, great songwriter, great player from the band Hanoi Rocks. Uh, Pat Benatar's guitar player, Neil Giraldo, Pat Benatar's husband as well, but his, you know, her guitar player is Neil Giraldo. Love his parts. Um, Elliot Easton from the band called The Cars. Great albums and great solos. Every single one of them tells a story. And, um, of course, Steve Stevens 
from the Billy Idol band. Big fan of his. And uh, again, I think we both obviously looked at those same album covers uh, growing up because um, even though he's a couple years my senior, but not much, I'm close behind him. Uh, we both have that big, big Aquanet hair back in the 80s. He still does. I, I wear hats now, but he, he's got, he still's got it. <laughs> and then there was two years spent with Slash recording Ain't Laugh Grand in his snake spit. And, and I can't even say it this afternoon. Snake in, pit studios. Snake yeah. Pit. What an say that five times and you'll see Slash's yeah. ghost. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, that was an experience. It was, it was definitely about as rock and roll circus and rock and roll carnival as you can get. I feel that that album, um, a little bit overlooked, but you know what? The people that did see that album and have listened to that album, um, really got something out of it. And which is cool because it's something for people to discover even to this day. So nice. in between all this hard rock, tell me where David Cassidy slots in, because you once said that you didn't think he had any idea of the amount of inspiration he gave to people like you. Can you elaborate on that? I grew up in the Bay Area, just outside of San Francisco. So the music that I was exposed to was such a great spectrum of music. I was exposed AM radio, um, rock station called KFRC out of the Bay Area. Every morning I wake up to it, Dr. Don Rose would uh, wake us up in the morning and he's the morning DJ. Well, on those shows, they would play the Commodores next to Aerosmith, next to the Bee Gees, next to Cheap Trick, next to, so, so it was always this cool spectrum of, of music, rock, funk. And in all of that, I was listening also and watching intently Friday nights, The Partridge Family. And that television show, more than all the music I was listening to, that sort of visual that I was being able to see every single week and run to the TV. And it just seemed like David Cassidy's life was one that I wanted to emulate, one that I wanted to, at least on TV, you know, Keith Partridge, not, maybe not David Cassidy, but Keith Partridge was, seemed like he had the idyllic life, you know, he was always playing gigs, girls loved him, you know, seemed to get along with his family, all the things that kind of like wasn't happening for me at that time. Like my parents were getting divorced and, uh, you know, uh, I was not the most popular kid in school. I played guitar, so it was, it was fine, but I was, you know, you're a kid. So, you, you know, you're going through your, your phases of being, a, of being a kid and you think you don't fit in. Sometimes you think you're the outsider. So it just seemed like he, being a musician had it figured out. So that was a huge influence for me, you know? And then when I would get the records, I really liked him. His voice was great. So, so that made me want to sing, even though I didn't have a lot of confidence in my voice for many, many years. You know, I'm still paranoid, if you would say, about my, about, you know, holding on to my voice when I go, when I do my solo uh, tours. If he can do it, I can do it. In, in some ways, I've been able to live that rock and roll dream in so many ways I have, you know. You said when you, when you met David in the 1990s. Yes, um, I did. That you had shaken the hand of the man who had passed the torch of rock and roll onto me. 
That's a, that's a pretty good quote. I didn't remember saying that, but that was exactly what <laughs> it, it wasn't probably as monumental as that sounds passing the torch, but it was a handshake. It was a, a smile. It was eye contact. It was at a club, but, it, but, but he took the time to say hello to me and, and um, maybe he didn't know how big of a um, influence he had on me because we didn't really have that much time to explain it all. But you know what? Hey, I was happy to, uh, to shake the hand. I am very excited to welcome my guest on this episode, successful musician, singer and songwriter, Sarah Hickman. Sarah's first guitar was inspired by the music of the Partridge family. The influence of David Cassidy in her musical career has been a huge part of her journey, which has included a recording of his first hit, I Think I Love You. We recorded it in an afternoon and Josh had this hilarious idea. Sorry, you can see how hot it is here. I'm sweating. And I'm in my house. It's a lot. Um, Josh said, okay, at the end of the song, he's from New York. At the end of the song, I think you should maybe uh, say, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And I was like, what? Why would I do that? That's No, that's sacrilegious. I can't do that. And he's like, yes, do it, do it, do it. So we did it. And then the very last part goes into this kind of elongated retard. So I'm going, I hate you. I hate you. I hate And we have all these harmonies. And then the very last thing is we go, I love you. So it kind of had this hilarious little ending to it, which to this day, I'm still glad he made us do that because it is really funny and unexpected. And it's a very different version from the Partridge Family's version. Yeah. But the rest of it's very true to form and... I always, man, the people that wrote the songs for the Partridge Family is so talented. I'm sleeping and right in the middle of a good dream. Like all at once I wake up to something that keeps knocking at my brain. Before I go insane, I put my blue to my head. And jump up in my bed screaming out the words of dread I think I love you
performances of the Partridge family in the backyard, Janine's backyard, for our moms. And we would actually make tickets and sell them tickets for like a quarter each. And we would have a concession stand where our moms made popcorn and then we put it out there pretending like we were selling it, right? And then we would take the stereo outside and put the record on of the Partridge family. And I always got to be Chris, the drummer, which was very exciting because Janine always got to be David Cassidy, which was the plum position, right? Everybody wanted to be David. Nobody wanted to be Reuben Kincaid, although one of the little boys in our neighborhood was Reuben, and it was pretty funny. I think he would actually put on a little suit and stuff, play along to the record, even if we didn't know how to play the instruments. We were really into it. We're singing, and we would make enough money that we could all get on our bikes afterwards and ride our bikes to Dairy Queen and get ice cream cones. And that was like, I felt like a real rock and roll star, right? We had to learn the songs. We performed the songs. We got paid for the songs. And then we got to go and treat ourselves. So to me, David Cassidy was like a win-win, right? You can't. <laughs> the songs were great. His voice was great. Yeah. I mean, he had, you could tell it's David too. You yeah. know, that's. Nobody sounded like him. I definitely think my first guitar was because of David Cassidy. I have no doubt. Watching the Partridge family and, you know, looking and seeing what chords he was playing and them playing them on the guitar and learning their songs and, you know, back then 45 records or whole albums and putting them on, dropping the needle, listening, 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 practicing, practicing, practicing. It was exciting, you know, because... You felt, I felt close to David. Like I felt like I was in the band with him I, or he was teaching me stuff. I don't think there's anything greater than finding your first heroes and they impress on you and, and alter your life forever because now they're inside you in a really sweet way, you know, in an inspiring way. I don't think there's a greater gift that you can give people than to inspire them to be more of who they are or who they're meant to be or, or giving them a dream to become. I think that's amazing. 
what a gift. You know, he gave me. What do you think David's legacy should be? Wow. There is something, um, something hopeful about him. But I think his legacy is that uh, you can, you can affect the world in a positive way. And that hopefully the world will remember that and love you through. You know, I'm sad that maybe he felt his his being was tarnished after his star faded somewhat. But for people like you and me and the people you wrote about in your book who shared their stories, uh, he never tarnished in my eyes. You know, I so I would hope that his legacy will be enjoy the talents you have, share them with others and know that you are enough. You know, you're just beautiful just the way you are. And and uh, he will not be forgotten. I don't I you know, he just won't be. International recording artist Robbie Di Stefano has carved out a successful music career inspired by David. He explained how David has been so important to him and why touring Australia allowed him to walk in the footsteps of his idol. Robbie, who lives in Argentina, doesn't speak a lot of English, so shared his story with translation help from his son Alexis and his friend Ramiro Turong. You can visit my YouTube channel, The David Cassidy Connections, which you can find under my name, to see Robbie recording for this episode, for which he performed this composition, Tell Me How Long, Honey. Cuántas verdades quedaron a medias, cuántos pretextos, preguntas y sueños se fueron contigo. Hasta cuándo, corazón, seguirás recordando. Basta ya, por favor, déjala ir. Hasta cuándo. Ya no quiero medio vivir. Jim Salamanis has been a decades-long fan and has one of the biggest single collections of David Cassidy and Partridge family memorabilia in the world. He firmly believes David's solo back catalogue should be remastered and released with previously unheard demos, rarities, alternate versions, concert rehearsals, live recordings and bonus tracks for any configuration in a deluxe box set. Jim also leads the battle cry for a deluxe box set of the Partridge family music, again adding previously unreleased tracks and alternate versions of their vast catalogue for a similar collection presentation. We shared a passionate, calm and measured argument explaining why the music is so important to David's legacy and why the search for previously unseen vintage concert footage goes on. He was just so underrated, and he was so huge. Yes, I know people like Michael Jackson were huge, and George Michael. There's so many of those people too, but people tend to forget that David had one of the biggest fan clubs in the, the entire planet in the early 70s, bigger than the Beatles and Elvis Presley too. People tend to forget this, and we all need to be reminded. You know, even his RCA albums that he did, there would be a lot of songs from both, at least his first two albums, The High They Climb, as well as Home Is Where The Heart Is. We know that was more music that was recorded back then, which has never 
ever seen the light of day. And of course, we know getting it in the street and everything that he did after that too, even late 70s, he did, as you know, Japan released the best of. And we were all surprised because we all thought it was a, an actual best of, but it wasn't really a best of. It was unreleased music by David Cassidy. So where's all that stuff? Did you like the content of, of that Japanese release? Because it was a different style. It was a very different style of music, David. But you know what? The voice was still there. Mm. The voice was still there. The only thing is that with the cover, they used just an old Partridge family picture from 1970, which I thought was a bit ridiculous, to be honest with you. It should have been a mid-70s photo of David because that's when he would have recorded all that music. Mm. And, of course, we know that was also released in the States on CD, but they only used nine tracks from that. And they included the original, I think I love you. So they didn't get the full 13 tracks that J- that the Japanese market did. Mm. And that's the only cool thing about Japan. Japan releases a lot of amazing CDs. You know, they recreated David's catalogue, Dreams of Nothing More Than Wishes and Cassidy Live and The High They Climb and um, Home Is Where The Heart Is and Getting It In The Street on the cardboard sleeve. They did such an outstanding job on on those and um today i would say they're worth an absolute fortune you can't really buy those anymore i'm sure i've seen the original dreams japanese cd close to 300 dollars. i think i saw it wow and i'm I'm not surprised you know because the japanese um are really good when it comes to releasing cds of any artist they basically release a certain amount and that's it it becomes collectible literally straight away and they're all a very good price, actually. But once they go, they go. You can't find them again. And in years to come, these CDs are going to be worth an absolute fortune. A lot of the Partridge Family CDs are starting to go now anyway. There's literally only three CDs available at the moment. I believe that's Sound Magazine, Shopping Bag and Christmas Card. After that, there's literally nothing left. Bulletin Board, Crossword Puzzle, Notebook, they're worth a fortune today. I, I remember when David passed away, Bulletin board was worth in the vicinity of close to $350 US dollars, which was astounding to me. I I do believe that Sony needs to reissue a lot of this catalogue again from the very beginning. And not only that, add extra bonus tracks, add the unreleased songs, add a lot of the different versions of each song. And that also includes David's catalogue. We all know for a fact David recorded so much more in his early days. Bell recordings. I had even heard his dreams are nothing more than wishes. It was close to 50 tracks that he recorded at that time in Hawaii. Now, who has that? I don't know. I can't even tell you whether Sony even has that. That could be sitting in someone's garage in Hawaii somewhere, just sitting there, which would be a real shame considering the music he recorded back then, you know? As a longtime fan, I want these out. And I feel that he deserves this more than anyone else in this entire planet. He really does deserve to have his music out. I'd like to be able to walk into a music store and and find a box set, not only on the Partridge family, but one on David Cassidy too. I agree with you entirely because I, I believe we need an extensive and exhaustive compilation of his solo work presented in... Anything up to, say, a 27-disc box set. Yeah, I agree. Vast, Absolutely. Yeah. His vast music archive can be explored to produce this priceless collector's item that includes individual book-style volumes. 
I agree. So we've, Absolutely agree with you. So yeah. we would have previously unreleased studio demos, rough cuts, previously unissued live recordings, because the yes. live album should have been a double, as we know. Yes. The demos that he recorded, remixes, outtakes, alternate versions. And what this would give his fans, music collectors who appreciate good good music, the yes. opportunity to own the evolution of David Cassidy and witness his yes. part in the musical revolutions o- over the decades. Because he was more than just the Cherish album, you Baby. You there was far more substance to him than anyone perhaps ever gave him credit for. And this is why his legacy is very important. It needs to come out. It needs to come out. We need to have like a separate box set for the Partridge family, a separate box set for David Cassidy. That's how it should be. After David died, basically we got nothing. And I don't understand that at all. David has said it countless of times. There's over 200 songs in the vaults at Sony. I want people to to listen to this music and think, wow, David Cassidy must have been massive. And of course he was. We know that. But we want young kids to understand what he was all about. Daryl Lloyd singles out David for being responsible for his successful career as a photographer, an interest which started in 1970 when he was 10 years old. Daryl shares anecdotes about his photographic career, meeting David and, as he describes here, a revealing conversation he had with Mike Melvoin, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew, the musicians who worked on the Partridge family music. If you listen to the complete episode, Daryl also calls for musicians who admire David's work to pay a special tribute to his music. And then there was a couple of songs off of Didn't You Used to Be that I like. Then after that, uh, it was just like a sporadic type thing. When did you get the first chance to meet him? The book signing. I went to the book signing. I took my, my camera. And uh, I said, I'm going to get a photo of him, no matter what, I'm going to get a photo. And of course, while you're standing in line, they're like saying, no photos, you know, we don't have time for photos and things like that. I said, uh, I- I'm going to get a photo. And so here, let-, let me show you this. Let me show you this. I have the photo. Let me see if I can show it to you. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, hang on. That that's a lovely picture. Oh, yeah. I have this hanging. I have this hanging above my desk, Great. and it was just a, 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 a. And I I was the only one that was able to get a photo with David that day. <laughs> wow. wow! And it was it was spectacular. And then I met him at uh, Tower Records when he was promoting the the nineteen ninety the the self titled CD. And then I met him for, oh my goodness, what album was that? Then and Now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got that. And uh, and I also have that autographed by Mike Melvoin, um, because Mike Melvoin did a concert at a local jazz club in Los Angeles, and I went to the show. And after the show, you know, he's hanging out, talking, you know, and I, I, I knew that he was, I brought the CD with me on purpose for him to autograph. So on the CD, I've got Mike's autograph and David's autograph. And it was spectacular. Mike was surprised. He, he, he looked at the album and he, and he recalled, you know, producing the album and, and the time that he had on it. And he said, my favorite uh, song that we recorded was on Broadway. And I said, on Broadway? That's not on this album. He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. 
And so he flipped it over and he went, huh, it's not on here. I'm like, I already told you, it's not on there. But now that he, you know, since he mentioned it, I'm like, man, I'd like to hear that. So yeah. it's, it's somewhere, so it exists somewhere. Do you think there is a missing back catalogue some, somewhere that none of us have heard? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, 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 yes, yes. There's probably lots of demos and there's probably absolutely a lot of completed songs that just didn't make it on. Just by the nature of albums, you know, there are certain songs that make it and there are some that, that there are not, it's not room for, mm. you know. The one thing that, that I had always wished that David had, had done was to make a doubles album, double CD, where he can just pile on the songs. How important is it to his legacy that we as lifelong fans and people generally get those songs released that completely encompasses everything he ever did? That, that would be an ideal situation because most artists do get that at, at, at some point in time. You know, Elvis got that. You know, Rod Stewart's done a couple of them. Uh, Elton John has done a couple of them. David Bowie absolutely have done them. It's, it's time for a box set of David Cassidy. Ruth McCartney was four years old when she found herself with a front row seat to Beatlemania. Her mother had married Paul's father, Jim, after a short courtship in 1964. And it was just another day when John Lennon would come over to stay or Jimi Hendrix arrive unannounced on the doorstep. Today... Ruth runs creative digital agency McCartney Multimedia with her husband Martin and mother Angie. Their first client was David Cassidy, who was a close friend. She set up and ran his first website. She talks passionately about their friendship, which started when they met in an elevator, and tells how she immediately took him home to meet her mother. Ruth shares some wonderful memories of their time together, and how David reacted when, out of the blue, Paul phoned him in London. I was working as a um, a freelance truck driver and film crew worker person in Hollywood. And I was in between projects. I was working for a commercial production company called Paisley Productions. And, you know, it's project to project, just like life is now. And uh, I thought, you know, I've had a pretty good week last week. Three of the shoots ran late. I'm getting an overtime check. I'm going to go into Beverly Hills. I'm going to get all dressed up, put my face on. I'm going to actually have a day off and go into Neiman Marcus and find a big floppy sun hat for a ridiculous amount of money. And then I'm going to go across the street to the hotel Rodeo and buy myself a glass of champagne and go home. So I was in the middle of all of that, heading up to the top floor to the millinery department and the floor, the elevator opened on the second floor and in steps David Bruce Cassidy. And there I am alone in, in a lift. And I thought, should I push the stop button? <laughs> I've got so much to say to him. And of course, you know, open mouth, insert foot. I went, oh, David Bruce, Ca David Bruce Cassidy, born, you know, 12th of April, 1950. Your social security number is blah, 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 blah. Your license plate on your Corvette is SXY641. And he's like, all of a sudden, he's backed up against the wall. And I had six inch heels on. So I had a good, you know, few inches on him because we were the same height and stocking feet. He's like five, nine. And I'm towering over him. And he's like, oh, well, nice to meet you. And I went, no, 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 you, you signed a, 
an autographed picture to me. Um, Ruth Ahrens was your agent. William Morris was your thing. My, my, my stepbrother rang you. You were staying at the Dorchester and you hung up the phone on him. He's like, wait, you're not McCartney. And I went, yeah. He's like, oh my God, I remember signing that because some bloke rings me up and pretends to be Paul McCartney and turned out it was. I said, well, I've got the picture still stuck on my fridge in my house in North Hollywood. You want to come home and see it? And he's like, all right. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> Took him home for lunch to meet mum. And there was the picture, which is still hanging on my wall. And it is inscribed to Ruth, be happy and stay free. <laughs> wow. So that was how we stuck yeah. up a friendship. And he was like, just, you know, an absolute sweetheart. And then whenever he was in town, he would, you know, I was the shoulder he would cry on and he would come over to the house and cook him all his favorite things. And Was he a good friend? Oh God, yes. He would do, once you were his friend, he would, yeah, defend you to the death. It's that old, you know, New Jersey Irish boy in him. Yes. Very, very loyal chap. Yeah. Lovely boy. Yeah. Just such a tragedy. I can't believe we're talking about him in the past tense still. I still dream about him. I still was sitting in Vegas with Sue and my husband Martin having dinner at the Rio or we're in a meeting with WH Smith discussing his merchandise or we're running his fan club or, you know, we built his first website and all of that stuff. So, yeah, yeah we go back, I think it was, what would it be, 1980-something. I never remember the year when we met and struck up the friendship, but he just was gobsmacked to walk into a house in North Hollywood and there stuck on the fridge with six cheesy magnets is a picture that he signed in 1972. <laughs> Incredible, isn't it? That story that, that you were relating just now, can you um, enlighten anyone who's not familiar with it? the story of when Paul wanted to talk to David when he was in London. Yeah. So Paul was home and, and um, David was in, in England touring and I'd seen pictures in the paper with David Bridger, the Arista A&R gentleman. Yeah. And they had somewhere in there, it said, David, who is staying at the Dorchester. So I was like, aha, I know where he's staying. So of course I, like every other te a teenage or 12 year old girl, rang the, rang the switchboard and asked for him. And no go. Well, I'm sorry, don't know. David Cassidy's not staying here. Of course, he had an alias, right? And so I nagged the living daylights out of Paul, who made some calls to his office in London, who made some calls to, I guess, Ruth Aaron's office in Beverly Hills to find out his alias, which anybody really could have guessed. It was David Jackson, David Jacks son <laughs> duh so then i said i'll oh, ring him up bring him up bring him up before he checks out before he goes back to america so of course paul rings through to the dorchester and says yeah mr david jackson please i believe he's in you know the so-and-so suite he, he got all the information so paul gets through and i'm listening on the extension hand over the phone all bated breath <laughs> and um paul gets through and he said david answers with hello like who the hell's got this number you know Mm. Um, and Paul was all nervous. He's like, oh, hello, is this David um, um, Bruce um, um, Jackson? And he's like, who wants to know? And he said, this is Paul McCartney. And David said, yeah, and this is the effing Duke of Edinburgh. And I'm up on it. <laughs> he didn't believe it. <laughs> so I was like, please, Paul, ring him back, ring him back, ring him back. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's, not, he's never going to believe it's me. I'm like, oh, please, 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 ring him back. So he got through again. And um, this time he's like, no, 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 it's really me. And, you know, they had a quick conversation. And knowing David later, he said he just, he collapsed on the couch going, there's a beetle ringing me? Why? What have I done? Have I done something wrong? 
so Paul said, no, he said, my kid's sister's a mad fan and blah, blah, blah. Would you sign a thing and I'll give you the address in house? Well, well, about three days later, um, the up-to-date album arrived, the postcard album arrived, the Christmas card album arrived, the 8x10 arrived, the whole bloody, all signed. I've still got them. Rob Proust has enjoyed a remarkable career, which started at the age of five when he discovered the music of the Partridge family. His passion for music led him to joining his first band at the age of 10. He later played with the Spoons and Honeymoon Suite, but in what he describes as a light bulb moment, switched from rock bands to playing keyboards in hit musicals, including Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, and later working with Benny and Bjorn of ABBA on the successful musical Mamma Mia for 15 years. He was musical director of the Broadway production. Rob taught actor Rami Malek how to play the piano for his role as Freddie Mercury in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Rob explains here the influence David Cassidy had on his career, why his music is so important, and how our formative years make us the people we become. He personally, or he specifically, I think was my first uh, entry into the world of, of, a, of like knowing what a pop idol is. I mean, if I look back and think, how obsessed was I with him? You know, what was it in him that was so inspirational? It was like that ideal of of a guy who's not that old, but he's so cool. And I would, I had a, I, and I'm always looking for this picture. I had a giant poster on my bedroom wall. It was a black and white photograph of David. And every once in a while, I Google David Cassidy posters, and I've still never seen the actual image from the poster. And I'll know it as soon as I see it. But I haven't. It's very strange that there's so many pictures of him, but the one that I had specifically, I've never seen. It's very weird. It's a black and white photo, and it was it was sort of a casual photo. And I got it at the local department store. They probably had a bunch of different ones, but I think I just wanted the biggest one of David. Um, but I think his his influence on me was just a general love of pop music and the idea of of making music that people people relate to and that comes from him as a person from him as in his personality on the television show and listening to the records and listening to his voice and it's it's almost not even a specific thing as much as it's it just is who i am in that way it's very strange that i i couldn't remove him and his influence from my life because it was because it was coming up at the same time like i said as i was learning piano those things were happening cons- at the exact same time and my my love of the partridge family was all encompassing <laughs> you know um i remember when he did his first solo album when cherish was released that was a different thing for me as well because i it was the first time i had to think wow he's not a he now he's not a member of the partridge family it's david on his own and that record still is magical to me in many ways too it's him as a personality first of all i think i think what he leaves behind is him first and then you want to see the partridge family you want to listen to the albums and then you want to get into his solo work i mean so i i I answered the question badly because i think it's just i think it's just everything i really i would say though the partridge family itself leaves a mark on anybody who sees it because even for a kid today to just watch the show it's a fantastic it's a fantastic experience because you get the music, you get the personality, and it can lead you to want to know more about him and then there's so much more to discover, really. You told me and you wrote in in Cherish that you tried to understand why you were so sad when he died. 
I think it's that recognition of of something that has been with you your whole life long. It's like it it is sort of like losing a family member who you don't know. It's a very it is I don't think I've quite understood it yet and I'm I'm still I still try to understand things like that because I felt the same way when Freddie Mercury died. He was probably the first person who passed away who I felt this weird sadness for where I thought, "Well, I don't even know him." But it's because of the influence that they have on our lives. And it comes back to that thing of of paying attention to memories in your life and time traveling back into your life to listen to music and remember how you felt being in the presence of that sound and that that music, right? So for a guy like David, knowing he was with us on the earth and then he's not there anymore, it's the weirdest thing, right? And somebody, there's a, there's a, a writer, a music writer who I've read once said the same thing about Paul McCartney. We are so lucky that a guy like Paul McCartney is still with us on earth. I would say the same thing about a guy like Elton John because I feel like one day they're going to be gone and it's going to be like they were never here. And it's a weird thing to think about that, but they're still here at this moment. But I think of David Cassidy in that way, that he left something for us and we were there at the same time and we got to enjoy this. It was like a communion, you know, that we shared this this thing in our lives. And he's left, but he's not, he's not really left. He's with us because we see pictures, we hear him, we can see him. And it's a weird acknowledgement that we all feel when when a life is gone and it, it has to do with losing family members with losing friends and and i think somebody like david cassidy it's it's a reminder that it's something that we all experience and but it's shared right it's not just your family it's not your specific it's not a friend of yours it's not your family it's like the whole world like oh my god we've all lost this person and it's a weird focus that happens to us all right it brings us together it unites us yeah. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, sad thing at the same time, because it's a reality that we all have to face. And I think that's a, it's a lesson that we all continue to learn as we live our lives, that death is real. And <clears throat> maybe that's the beauty of the life that we live, that at some point it's taken away and it's happening to other people. It's going to happen to us. Like, it's weird that we don't consider it for ourselves in that same way. Maybe we don't want to think about it, but it's true. Like, like it's good to consider it sometimes. It's a weird thing, but it's good to, to like roll it over in our heads once in a while. But maybe having celebrities leave us is a reminder that it's a degree of loss in our lives that's very important to us because David has meaning for us in our lives and it's as important as everybody else in our lives. Hal Eisenberg and his Beach Boys tribute band opened for David in Atlanta in 2003, where he observed close up the impact of being a teenage idol appeared to have on David. He shared his thoughts on how David was labelled and the impact that had on his career. Hal offers an analysis on the price of fame and explains why David's The Higher They Climb album needs to be recognised more as a template for what he was capable of achieving musically. Uh, one of my favorite albums of all time, I've told you this before, but because this is your show, I, I figured I'd say it again, is, uh, is The Higher They Climb. Uh, that's one of my, not just my favorite album of his, it's just one of my favorite albums. I just, I like everything on that album. Uh, There's so many covers that he did uh, that I think are the best covers, like um, uh, Bebopalula, I Write the Songs, Darlin yeah. of the Beach Boys, where he has Flo and Eddie of the Turtles singing background on that. And of course, on I Write the Songs, he's got uh, Carl Wilson. 
and his angelic voice behind him. And of course, the album was produced by Bruce Johnston of the Beach Boys. So you have all those people involved and all those people are, are very highly regarded in the music industry. And he was always, David always seemed to be able to get those people to be either on his music or he was on their music, which to me speaks a lot about his talent, mm. that he was a lot more than, than the facade that I think a lot of people on the outside mm. saw. The fact that he was bottled originally in his career and sold as, as a teen idol boxed him in, although he could never break out of that mold from the public standpoint. The musicians knew David, and they knew he was a lot more than that. And that's obvious when you hear this, like this album, and you hear other songs that he's on, you know that they regarded him as a very talented musician. It's frustrating. I can't imagine what he went through. I think they all get that stigma. They, they love the limelight at first because it gets them noticed. And then for the rest of their lives, they fight that image. Because they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm much more than this. I'm not just a teen idol. Yeah. It's funny, though, to me, it's kind of ironic, at least in my mind, that the, the album that he, that he did that points that irony out is also, to me, the album that shows how diversified he was. His vocals on a lot of those songs outshine some of the originals. His, his styling is David. You, you can tell when you hear David Cassidy. You can tell when you hear his music. It's very identifiable. In all his frustration throughout his life, which drove him to the demons that he had, the reality is he did establish himself. He was a talented artist. You mentioned about at the concert where you were opening for him, how he looked at the cover of the Life magazine, you know, and said, oh, I look like a girl. And he often mm -hmm. said, oh, doesn't she look pretty? Mm -hmm. Do you think that for many stars like him who have been the most popular person on the planet, the centre of a young teenage girl's fantasy, let's not forget for young men, he was the person they wanted to be. He helped give them their identity. But right. is it right for people like him and, and others before him and since, by saying that about themselves, are they really being quite offensive to their fans because that is the image that a young girl fell in love with? Who is it for them to make a judgment call that they can easily dismiss the type of person they were because of the way they looked? From the, from the, from the grown woman who was a young girl at the time that idolized him, she sees that as, you know, almost like an insult to her, you know. Mm. And he's on the other side going... I realize you're looking at me like that and you're reminiscing about me, but, but damn it, I'm somebody else now. You know, I don't want to be that guy, but hey, let's revisit 1972. But, but I also, what I see is the inner demon of the, of the artist, that's David. I see David fighting with himself. When he says something like that, it's his way of saying, I'm not that guy. I might've been that guy, but I, I'm not that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And damn it. I am still that guy because everybody knows me as that guy. It's just a, to me, it's a frustration, a self-effacing way of recognizing the fame, being angered that he's famous for being the teen idol, but at the same time realizing that's why you were able to make it in the industry to start with. If you're a deeper 
music fan than the casual fan, you owe it to yourself to give his music a listen outside of what you know of him. It will make you smile because you won't realize uh, what he brought to the table until you listen to it. Philip Clark has been an ardent fan of David since October 1973, when David released his Dreams Are Nothing More Than Wishes album. David has been a strong source of inspiration and influence in different aspects of Philip's life. He talks about David's impact, his music, and why he needs to be recognised for his contribution to music. But I do think that if, if he had entered music in a different way, and it would have probably been with some acting success behind him, which would have given him some clout, which probably would have allowed him to negotiate a different kind of scenario in the, in the recording studio around the kinds of songs he wanted to play and, and have people hear. Yeah, I do think he would have been regarded much more highly than he is. And, you know, a number of people have gone on record for saying that he is a seriously great singer. And he was. He was absolutely like a magnificent singer. Magnificent. Yeah. I, as a young lad even, was always drawn to music. And I think, you know, my earliest musical influence was actually Scylla Black from the 60s. And the whole Mersey scene, I was a, obviously a young lad. My mum was a huge Beatles fan. My elder brother was a huge Beatles fan. And I adored Scylla Black from the get-go. Music was always important to me. And what David Cassidy gave me was a focal point. And so then through my, through my teen years, and especially when I came to Australia, he was my musical expression. As a young lad, I sang in choirs and wanted to better myself as a singer. When I became much more intentional about being a singer, I used to listen to David. And I used to play vignettes of his songs and think, how did he achieve that vocal sound? How did he develop his voice that way? What's he doing there? You know, how's he creating that? And there are many, 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 and David is definitely a great example of this, singers who are natural singers. But there are just as many artists, if not most artists, at some point have had vocal coaching. And so by the time I was a, a young adult, I, I met my wife, we were both very young when we met, we were 19, we got married when we were 22. So that set me on a path in terms of you know, life's expectations, which I'm very grateful for. But musically, I still continued my dreams and I, and I studied singing through all of my 20s. But always in the back of my mind, it was, I couldn't emulate David, you know, his voice is his voice, my voice is my voice. But I feel his presence when I sing and I feel his inspiration when I sing. And in later years, when I've had the chance to stage shows, I've staged cabarets and stuff and done vocal arrangements, I've taken the opportunity where I can to sing some of his songs and bring them to an audience. And it's given me great satisfaction. On the flip side of performing as well, not, well, not quite the flip side, but through musicals, you know, I've been involved in musicals, uh, both as a performer and as a director, a musical director. And, you know, so I've had opportunities for, to do things like Carousel in Oklahoma, which, of course, was Shirley Jones's big beginning. But I've also played the part of Joseph and the Amazing Taylor Color Dreamcoat. And, and I've musical directed three different productions of Jesus Christ Superstar, which David also did. Corny as this might sound, he was with me when I did those things. And, and especially Joseph. Joseph is, when I reflect on my performing, that role was just very, very special for a number of reasons. And one of them being, I finally had the chance to play a role that David had done himself. It's always there. It's always there as an influence for me. 
Is his legacy to to you? When I think about my funeral, I think about what David Cassidy's song "Don't Want Played." So as I leave this life, I want David there. This will sound a bit bizarre to a lot of people. My wife and I laugh about it, but in my wardrobe, I've got my amazing Technicolor dream coat, and I've said to my wife, "I want to be buried in that with that," and I want placed in my coffin something of David when I die. So that's that's the end of my life. Right now, what's tremendously important to me is to have opportunities like this. I I get I hope it, hope it comes across. I get joy speaking about him through David Cassidy. Not only is there whatever I drew out of the experience of allowing him into my life as an artist, but I've had the, the you know the great honor to meet such incredible people. Who yeah, David Cassidy was the first thing we had in common. Um, but now we're great friends. Even as I think about the experiences, you know, particularly when David finally got back to Australia. The first time I saw David perform was in the Cobra in Las Vegas um, in 2000. That was the first time I'd ever seen him perform live. But the first time I ever saw him in concert live, because I was a bit too young and a bit too far away from London and Manchester to go and see him in England, was in the early 2000s in Australia. And um, my son, who um, is a great guitarist himself, Nicholas, you know, he came with me to two of the concerts and he was blown away by David. And my wife came with me to Melbourne and we had this fantastic experience in the David Cassidy mosh pit 
in Melbourne, like I can just, there are, there are so many things that are either directly or indirectly related to David, you know, and I, I just, I feel grateful. I feel inspired. I feel uh, happy. If David Cassidy was dismissible, guys wouldn't have cared less. Oh, so, you know, the girls like David, who cares? And, you know, I like Mud, I like Sweet, I like Alice Cooper, I like whoever, right? But guys actually had to hate David Cassidy. Such was his impact. They had to have an emotional reaction that was a counterpoint to what the girls' reaction was. That says something about his impact. Yes. And when, when, when David died, I mean, we, I think we all feared that it was going to happen. But sadly, you know, and again, you know, Australia and timing and stuff, for us here, it was the middle of the day. And I was at work and I had to uh, travel from one office to another uh, to go to a meeting and, and the news came over and I just, I wanted to weep. I really did want to weep in that moment. And I had to hold myself together and I had to sit through this excruciating meeting that I couldn't have cared less about. But like you, I think when I, when I got home and, and then of course it was all over the news. And again, can I just say that's something of his impact too. Like how forgotten, forgotten in inverted commas was he really, it made headline news here headline news around the world right mm. and the reaction as you say in the twitter sphere and all of that from celebrities and fans alike but yes as always i went to his music for solace and just grateful that i could you know that there are so many great songs that you can just play and just go into that space you go into when you're you know having your private experience of david cassidy and, and his music just just yeah Great solace. There was a very moving testimony from Christopher Jones, who lives in Fort Lauderdale in the United States. In my book, Cherish, David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love, Christopher wrote a very moving tribute, where he said, Life can be utterly devastating to those programmed with giving hearts. He lived quite close to David during his final days, felt a special empathy for him because he was someone who he could relate to. And on a personal level, there were many parallels. In his written tribute, he admitted for the first time that when David died, he broke down in private, feeling he had lost the best friend he had never met. These are the thoughts he shared. Today is November the 21st, 2020. 2020, as we all would note, not the most favorable of years for a long list of reasons. I'm here in the United States. This is also three years from the passing of David Cassidy in 2017. Also my birthday. My birthday uh, in passing on my birthday. Um, real double whammy for me. I was having not such a good day. And um, him being so local to me, I always felt I'd have an opportunity to meet him here in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, had opportunities, um, maybe uh, I regretted my, that afterwards, but not making the most of those opportunities. Winks and nods, we shared some of the same causes, some of the same circles uh, at a few events. It was Grand Marshal for some of our yacht parades during Christmas time and some other events here in town. He had some, some times that weren't so good. He made the news for some uh, troubling events here and there. Um, I always thought he was a misunderstood person and certainly he had some issues down the road there that uh, tended to undermine who he otherwise was inside. I regretted seeing his home on the market. I often thought that should have been made into some sort of tribute or 
museum of sorts. But maybe they felt the family that was not the place to do it or not the location and maybe other places to do that. But uh, nevertheless, it's something some of us have kept in mind. Maybe there's still, uh, still a way to make that happen. I had some uh, events in my life uh, from early on all the way through, actually, but where he was a, an inspiration for me, as I noted in some of the passages that I have in uh, Louise's uh, very fine book. I grew up fatherless most of the time. Uh, in other words, he wasn't in my life. I was the oldest of four, moved around a lot, had to grow up very fast, matured fast. You know, in those days, in those circumstances, you look for mentors. You look for people you can either mimic or model yourself after, people that are uh, both charming and endearing, yet, uh, you know, maintaining their character and offering you a uh, directive, if you will, of how you can uh, model your life. And, uh, well, I wore my hair like his, quite ironically, ended up looking like his, uh, my nickname and uh, those days was Keith after the Partridge family character. And uh, I took to playing guitar. And even when uh, things were not always ideal for him, he was always managed to, you know, pick him, himself back up and put himself back in the limelight. Even though he was highly regarded for his role with uh, the TV series and his solo career thereafter, um, he wanted to do more. He wanted to be seen as a serious musician. He he aspired to be seen in those regards because he was. He was a very talented singer and a very good guitar player. His, uh, his voice and his sound, uh, I, he, he could have formed supergroups. Even at the very end, when things weren't good, he managed to pick up the pieces a little bit so that down the stretch he was uh, someone more manageable and more, um, more uh, appetizing for more to interact with. He even had some concerts uh, and put on some shows late in his... Uh, late in his life there. Um, the hospital where he died, the general area, I, I pass by it frequently. And uh, each time I think of him, it's, uh, it's funny how that has become mentally memorialized um, for that location. And again, I hold a lot of regrets for not taking advantage of those opportunities. He, he cared for animals. He cared for the downtrodden. He, uh, he had a big heart, bigger than many might have known. And um, even though the wasn't always able to be showcased. Uh, those close to him knew that. And uh, certainly in town, he tried to make a, an effort for that. And um, again, very sorry to see him go. And, and I, I guess it's a normal, normal human reaction we all have. We say, well, geez, if we could have only met him, maybe we could have made a difference. Well, you know, I think for some of the causes that we shared and some of the things that we we're about, um, I think maybe I could have hit it off with him had I had, had a chance to meet him. But in those days, he was a private by design. Um, and sometimes he certainly wasn't as private as he'd like to have been. But um, a big inspiration for me and um, appears for many people around the world. In my situation, it wasn't like a, a lot of women that were starstruck by him or anything. It was actually his, uh, his talent, his, uh, his character and uh, his causes, the things that were important to him that really were manifest uh, to me. And, um, you know, I, I think we really lost something when we lost him. It's too bad uh, he isn't still with us. Um, I really think uh, he would have had far more to give. Uh, he really could have made a, a real splash later in his life. 
Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find all archived episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Part 3 will be released on August 30th. So we'll see you then. Take care.